You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Hi, I'm Adam Brisbane, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Today, I'm happy to introduce a recent conversation between our co-founder, Des Trainer and Tomas Tungus, a venture capitalist and partner at Redpoint Ventures. You're most likely familiar with many of the SaaS companies that make up Tomas's portfolio. Looker and Expensify are two of the headliners. But Tomas himself is best known for his blog, which you can read at tomtungas.com. He analyzes startup fundraising, benchmarks, and management best practices through a unique data-driven lens and typically posts daily. Des was able to pick Tomas's brain about what qualities he looks for in a promising SaaS company. You really want some a product or a technology that is able to kind of uniquely position itself in the market and command pricing power. How the squeeze in startup funding that we've all seen in the past few months is going to play out over various markets. I think the Series A market is probably going to be mildly impacted, but not altogether hugely impacted. The later stage markets will certainly be, and we're definitely seeing that. And the ways Tomas is advising the latest generation of young founders. The, the most important advice is always have a plan to get to profitability on the current cash you have. A former product manager and engineer himself, Tomas has seen the startup world inside and out from seed stage to IPO. All it does take it from here. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Des. Tom, could you briefly explain what drew you to the world of venture capital? Well, I was drawn to venture capital because... A couple of different reasons. I think the first reason is I'd always been fascinated by technology and I wanted a job with an unlimited learning curve. And uh, venture capital, it's a really wonderful place to work because it exposes you to incredibly sharp people who are looking to change the world by uh, bringing about new technologies. That, and so you're always kind of talking to people who are on the cutting edge. Uh, and I really love that part. And um, the other part was, you know, I'd worked in a bunch of different functions. So at Google, I was a product manager and I actually worked in kind of customer success and operations. You know, my first startup that I started with my dad, I was doing all the sales and the marketing. And then I'd been an engineer before. And so I'd seen, you know, a handful of the different parts of the startup. And so I thought maybe at some point I'd be able to help companies or at least understand what it is that they were going through when they were building their businesses. And I got really excited about the prospect of helping founders start those businesses. I think the opportunity to work with so many founders gets you such a diverse range of experience in terms of uh, like the different problems that are out there, the different approaches and ways to solve them, the different ways to grow a company, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, like I said before, one of the things I was looking for was an unlimited learning curve. And I, and I realized that while there is this subject matter learning curve of trying to figure out hey, what's next in SaaS or in Bitcoin and blockchain, there's another learning curve which is steeper and much more interesting. And it's how do you partner with a founder to help them achieve their potential and how do you evolve in that relationship and uh, challenge them in the ways that they need to be challenged and, and support them in the ways they need to be supported to truly achieve you know, the vision that they've set out to accomplish. Certainly. Um, looking at your, your portfolio, like you've got some truly great SaaS companies in there like the likes Thank of you. Expansify, Looker, etc. What qualities do you think make for like Tom Tunga's company? Like, what are the qualities <laughs> that uh, all the SaaS companies you have share? Yeah, well, I wouldn't call them Tom Tunga's companies. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think what we look for is a couple of different things, but the most important, I think, is a sustainable long term competitive differentiator. You really want a product or a technology that is able to kind of uniquely position itself in the market and command pricing power. And so that can be a founder who discovers a market opportunity more quickly than anybody else. It can be a founding team that develops a technology that's really difficult to replicate, or it can be a group of people who leverage and exploit a new distribution mechanism 
to achieve you know, far better unit economics. And you, most of the time, it's a combination of those three things. Yeah. Do you have any preference for those three, like you know, unique go-to-market versus unique product? Is there a preference, or do you think they're all roughly equal? Well, I think it kind of depends on um, – you have to kind of match the advantage to the opportunity, right? Like if you're creating a new market, you really need somebody who can sell as a founder because you've got to educate lots and lots of people about why this new – market segment matters. I mean, like, in a certain sense, Intercom is that, right? Like, Intercom is a business that has really transformed uh, customer interactions, right, that businesses have with a new kind of product. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, like, if you were going to compete in marketing automation, right, and you were going to compete with Marketo and Loco and HubSpot, you would really look for, like, a technology differentiator in that case because uh, the market's established, you've got some brands there, all those companies are either uh, they're all well capitalized either through acquisitions or because they're public. And so, you know, you can't just... Um, yeah, it's not a level playing field in that regard. <laughs> no, exactly. And you can't sell your way out of that market, you know? Um, so you need something to hang your hat on in that case. For sure. Um, sticking with the sort of investment team, a lot of your uh, investments are, are in or around Series A stage. What I'm curious about is, like, if a startup wants to raise a Series A from you or indeed from anywhere at Redpoint... What are the key metrics that you look at? Like, uh, is it like a unique go-to-market? Is it a unique product? Would you, you know, what sort of metrics would you, would you look at? Yeah, this is. Um, so I'm a really metrics-driven guy, and I ran this analysis and I tried to figure out whether or not there was a correlation between MRR and Series A valuation. And it turns out the relationship is actually really weak. Wow. So um, out of the companies I analyzed, a third of those Series A's had no revenue when they raised. It was actually 27 percent, and then. The other big bump was right around 100K. And so what that tells me is, you know, right around like 50 to 100K in MRR is typically, if a company's in market with a product, 50 to 100K is, tends to be the range that we get involved with or partner with a company. Um, but a lot of the times, or, you know, some substantial fraction of the times, uh, we will invest in founders when it's just an idea or before the company's actually brought the product to market. It's interesting. Uh, when you say like there's a bump around 50 to 100 or, or, or even that like seems slightly low in a sense, uh, do you look at like how the revenue is composed? Like are you looking for like is it a considered purchase or is like is it like 50,000 customers paying a book a month? Or like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. How important is the spread there? Do you want to see them going up market at that stage or how do you no, see that? No, 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 no. I mean, uh, you know, one way of thinking like what you're really looking for is you're looking for short sales cycles. Right, so you you know forty five days or less, you're looking for a, the one or two salespeople who are on the team. They're just they're blowing past their quota, right? And that tells you that the, the market is pulling the product. The market wants the product, and the company is having a hard time keeping up. You know, and then the other thing that you're looking for is account expansion, right? Like that's negative net churn, right? It's just such a powerful. Uh, growth mechanism. So maybe those three things, you know, it's probably good. One, two, three. I've often, um, I think Darmesh at HubSpot often uses the phrase that products are either bought or, or sold. And it sounds like you're looking for a product <laughs> that's bought at Series A. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the mid-market, that's definitely the case. Like it, in the enterprise part of the market, like if you're selling at ACVs above 150K or 250K, it's pretty hard to find a company that, you know, isn't selling the product as opposed to it being bought. But yeah. in, in market, you're definitely looking for that dynamic. For sure. Um, Aside from, like, I guess, the revenue or MRR, like, there's so much talk these days about, like, product-first companies or designer founders. 
When you're looking at it, and you yourself, obviously, as a previous PM at Google, uh, will have a sort of probably a natural uh, gravitational pull towards a great product. But when when you're looking at a deal, how much of a role does product quality play? Would you go for a healthy business with like with like an obviously bad product, or would you go for an obviously good product in an unhealthy business? I think um, product is everything. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it, it kind of depends which segment of you are at the market. But the more you're kind of betting on consumerization of IT, product is it's kind of the first line. Like you you have to have something great to sell, right? And so it's. Um, but it's it's necessary and it's efficient. Like you also need to go to market organization, and you need to, you know, the founding team needs to be, believe and and value uh, what a sales and marketing team can do uh, to accelerate the growth of the business. So, you know, between the two bad options you gave me, um, <laughs> I think I'd probably take a great product with bad sales and marketing execution because I can, you know, with the right hires or the right advisors or the right advice, I think you can transform that business. That makes sense to me. Um, when you, you spoke there about the consumerization of IT or consumerization of the enterprise, how long do you think that lasts for a startup as they move up market? Like at, at some point, do they bump into companies who've yet to like who who still have these protracted buying processes? Do you think it's a certain price point at which it fails to be true, or does it hold true the entire way? Well, like HubSpot is probably consumerization of IT still, and that's because they had a strategic decision really not to move up market, right? And instead of moving up market, the way that they're growing their revenue per account is by selling more products, cross-selling. Um, but you know, you have other companies like New Relic is really trying to push up market to compete with App Dynamics, and they started with consumerization of IT, and now they're going after larger and larger customers. So it's a strategic decision that the company decides to pursue because. If you start in consumerization of IT and then all of a sudden reroute up market, that means your product features need to be different, your marketing positioning needs to be different, and the kinds of salespeople you hire are going to have different qualifications. And it plays it everywhere, right? It's your whole sales cycle, uh, For like sure. your sales process, everything changes. Yeah, I mean, the only, um, you know, Kenny Van Zandt, I've written a bunch about this, but it's Kenny Van Zandt's idea, which is the notion of like a flywheel business. Right. Those are the only companies where, um, you know, and they're not that many of them. Uh, SolarWinds is one, Asana is one, um, and you know, obviously both of those are businesses where Kenny had an influential role. But in flywheel businesses, you have the the whole of the organization betting on uh, consumerization of IT, even at the field level, the, the account executives who are selling hundred thousand plus deals. It's uh, it's interesting. I've I've seen it happen where companies basically have to adopt. The selling patterns to match the buying patterns of the organizations they're going for, right? It's uh, yeah, it's yeah. like jigsaw pieces needing to adapt for each other. Exactly. So, sticking with the product idea for a second, um, I read recently that you listed speech recognition as as a really interesting, and I know this is getting quite tactical, but uh, as a really interesting uh, innovation area. Obviously, we just saw Google launch speak speech for like type and editing and all that sort of stuff. Is this something you're watching from like as from a VC standpoint? Like, do you think we're at the precipice of a new input mechanism like touch, or is it just something that's cool that you like to keep an eye on? I think it's a big deal. Um, you know, word error rate or speech recognition accuracy has improved by about fifty percent in the last three years, and a big part of that is advances in machine learning. That's one big force driving it. The second is. Uh, mobile phones, people don't really like to type as much on mobile phones as they do on computers. And so, you know, there's there's kind of a natural UI change there. And then the third is you can actually speak three times faster than you can, than even world record holders can type. And so 
the productivity boost there is meaningful. Like I, I type all, I mean, I dictate all my emails and most of the blog posts just because it's faster. Um, and so I think those three things really kind of uh, tee up a discontinuity in the way that uh, people think about input. Um, but it's not like, I don't mean to say that speech will replace the keyboard. You know, you wouldn't, in the middle of a, of a busy meeting, you wouldn't start talking to your telephone, right? Like, <laughs> there are certain yeah. contexts in which it's socially acceptable to speak to a device, and, and some of them there aren't. So, I, I, but I do, I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited about it as an input mechanism, and then I'm also really excited about it because all of a sudden we can start to extract insight from recorded speech. For sure. I mean, I think uh, it's Bill Buxton over at Microsoft uh, who taught me the phrase of like, you know, the different contexts are like eyes free, hands free, ears free, mouth free. So sometimes you can talk but not type. There's sometimes you can uh, type but not see. There's sometimes sometimes you want to listen to something, you know. (laughs) uh, And like basically like I, I, I fully expect the way messaging will evolve will be some version of, you know, I will send you a message any way I want. I can record it or send it or type it, uh, and you can receive it any way you want. You can hear it, possibly in my voice, but you, or you can read it, and you can compose back. And neither of us, it's almost like the Star Trek sort of translator, except for it's just mapped onto, like, different input and output mechanisms, right? Exactly. That's, that's a really, yeah, you have a babble fish on each side. That's really cool. I never thought about it that way, but that makes sense. Yeah, it's, um, I, one other thing, I, I really think if this kicks off, there'll be, like, some sort of weird butterfly effect, because I think the changes, uh, it's easy to think that this is a more efficient way of typing, but, like, there's implications for, like, office design if... People, I mean, as you said, people genuinely can't speak much quicker than they can type. So we don't want to do that in massive open-air offices, right? <laughs> uh, no, that's right. But, and there's also implications for software because, uh, you know, so much of software is about minimizing the amount of input because typing is difficult. But now you're seeing us move back towards conversational design where you see people building bots for, like, for plain text input-output. But, like, obviously, you know, the, the backlash against bots will be something like, oh, well, it's too arduous to type in cheap flights to Seattle. But it's very quick to say it, so I I really think like if this kicks off the way it could potentially, like it'll it its tentacles will reach into all aspects of how we work. I think you're totally right. When I was at Google, we went on this trip, and we studied in five different countries the way that different people interacted with the internet. And I'll never forget like we landed in Beijing, and before then it had never dawned on me to ask the question how a Chinese person types, and um. And so then we went to the Google office and we started uh, watching how people typed on their mobile phones and on their uh, laptops. And it's crazy. So like, like the word uh, for four is se, which is, um, has a special character to it. And then there's this thing called opinion, which is a Romanized version, which is how you would spell it with an English keyboard or QWERTY keyboard, and that's S-I. But it turns out that every vowel in Chinese you can say four ways. And so a Chinese person, in order to write the number four, first types S-I, and then from a pop-up menu, selects one of the four characters corresponding to the vowel pronunciation that they mean. Wow. And, I mean, that's just for one, (laughs) you know, one concept, one character. Um, And so speech has, you know, for those kinds of uh, languages where the QWERTY keyboard, the Western keyboard doesn't really apply I think it has could have a transformational effect in the way that people use computers. Uh, maybe it'll change topic a little bit. Yeah. Um, certainly, the first way I discovered you, and the way most of our listeners will likely know of your work, is actually through your blog, where you share everything from stats and data-driven analysis of startups and the entire VC world. I feel like you know, you put us all to shame. You blog almost daily there. How did that get started, and um, why is it still an important outlet for you? Yeah, um, I really love to write. There was this. Uh, 
there's this author, Gustave Flaubert, who wrote, um, writing is the art of discovering what you believe. And I really like that. It started maybe about six years ago. And, you know, I would go to board meetings or I go to meetings with founders and they would ask me questions that I wouldn't know how to answer. Like, uh, what should my revenue per employee be? Or how big should my Series A be? Or what's going on in the market? And coming from Google, I knew that data existed somewhere. And so I just started looking around for the data and I shared the analysis with them. And I said, well, there's nothing proprietary within this analysis, so I may as well publish it. And so that's how the blog kind of got started. And at the beginning, it was more intermittent, but then our older son came along, and he really wanted to drink his milk at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> and, uh, and so I would wake up, and I'd give him his bottle, and then I'd just start to write. And uh, it, you know, obviously, he wanted to have his bottle every day. And so then, then I started to take that period in the day just to write. And, um, and what's nice about then is uh, it's serene, right? There are no interruptions. And so you know, within 45 minutes or an hour... I could crank out 500 words and maybe a little analysis and publish it. And so that's how it all got started. Nice. And it's obviously served you well ever since. Um, when you look at other companies where content marketing is like their primary growth channel or how they attract it, uh, would you encourage them to like diversify and see if they can find paid acquisition? Or, or would you encourage them to like double down on content? Do you have a preference for like how, how sort of focused a company's go-to-market is? You know, in the long term, you definitely want diversification just because you want to have lots of different levers to pull. And, you know, content, I mean, HubSpot proved that content marketing is, can be unbelievably scalable. I think they have more than a million subscribers to their blog. So I think in the early days, you know, content marketing works really well. And if you can maintain it at scale, it's terrific. But like anything, you, you really want diversification. Do you think that content marketing can, can like bring a business all the way? I mean, you spoke at HubSpot. I think HubSpot do like millions of page views a month and stuff. Or um, like, is there some like? Would you be worried about a series, let's say, series like D company who's still relying on content? Well, I mean, the function of content is lead generation, right? And so, if the company were able to, you know, generate like two or three times the number of leads that the company needed in order to attain its bookings targets, you'd be pretty excited. About you'd be happy. <laughs> yeah, you know, the thing with content marketing is. It can be unpredictable. You don't really know. Like when you when I publish a post, I have no idea how many, whether or not people are going to like it or not. So, yeah. um, so at some point, lots of companies decide to develop a more kind of uh, turnkey or coin-operated lead generation mechanism, which makes sense. Is there some relationship with the market they play in? Like I've often heard it said that like that the the sort of keyword depth in like SaaS, like if you're a new relic or whatever. It's just not as strong as having a lot of content, a lot of ebooks, a lot of like sort of thought leadership material. Do you have an opinion on that, or do you just think like let the data guide you? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, which content marketing strategies work with different levels of buyers? I think more casual content marketing probably works better in consumerization of IT. Right. You know, where the buyers are actually consumers, and then there's probably a convergence of content marketing with field marketing or sales materials. But that's probably a continuum. But I, I haven't thought about it before. But yeah, that's probably the case. So you've written and spoken quite a bit about this newer go-to-market trend, calling it the flywheel model. Basically, like where you have your enterprise sales working on growing existing accounts rather than necessarily say growing new leads. And obviously, Atlassian, who went public for money billion last year, popularized this. Why is this a successful approach? Yeah, it's a really a successful approach when you, two conditions are satisfied. The first is that the, the cost to acquire the target customer are really high or it's difficult to acquire that customer and there's not a lot of competition. Um, and the reason that, this is, that the flywheel model works really well in those cases, flywheels are, you know, in the physical world are, are big and heavy and they take a while to start and the same is true for 
flywheel business model. So if you have a lot of competition, you're going to face a bunch of pressure to raise capital and employ uh, in building a traditional go-to-market team with like account executives and SDRs and all that stuff. So you need time to be able to build it, and you need patience. And this, the second reason the flywheel model works really well is because um, if you can be patient, then what you can do is you can use content marketing or free products or free trials in order to um, educate the buyer and let them try it on their terms. Um, and that's why like, at last thing that sells to engineers, like, an engineer doesn't want to talk to a salesperson. Um, <laughs> they just don't, right? And so the way that a lot of infrastructure software is sold today is um, through open source, right? Or try before you buy. Because what, what engineers really want to do is they want to try the product, kick the tires and see what it's like, and then they'll buy. And so that definitely lends itself to a flywheel model. Like Asana is another really great example. I'm not going to, you know, if you tell me, hey, I've got the next great productivity to-do app slash project management app, I'm not going to buy it on the spot because it's an experiential product, right? I've got to give it a shot to see whether or not the product design philosophy fits with the way that I work. Um, and so there's like a long consideration period or a lot of evaluation that's required. Um, and in both of those categories, like I said before, those are either difficult buyers to uh, to convert or buyers with high CAC. And so it's kind of a natural place for a flywheel model to work. That makes sense. Um, you mentioned how like, in this little competition, uh, it, it also works well. Obviously, Asana has plenty of competition, but something Asana does seem to have solved in a lot of ways is um, the stickiness of the product, right? Like retention or the cost of switching out of Asana is like agony. It kind of, you, know, you, 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 <laughs> yeah. you kind of bend your whole team around Asana in some sense. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, um, you know, they're selling a philosophy, right? They're selling another way of working. And I think once you have an internal champion who decides, hey, we're going to move the organization this way and people buy into it and start working, um, you know, for the organizations that adopt it, it's really difficult. So I, you know, Slack, to a certain extent, probably also has similar dynamics. Right, exactly. Uh, I think the uh, interesting thing for me is, like, if Slack was ever to get uh, credible competition, it'll be interesting to see how much of a competitive asset the platform is uh, when it comes to, like, switching costs. Because in a sense, like, switching from HipChat to Slack, like, I think they just built an importer, so it was a single click or whatever. I wonder, like, will the platform and the bots and the apps that are built on Slack be their sort of competitive differentiator? They're, like, as you said earlier, like, long-term competitive sustainable differentiator that stops them from, like, one click jumping to the next uh, team messaging product. I think it will be. I mean, if anybody's proved it, it's Salesforce. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, I mean, another great example, we were um, Series A investors in Heroku, and that's another one where, you know, platform as a service over time, the barriers to entry have gotten lower and lower, particularly as the cost of infrastructure for services declined. But the app ecosystem on top of Heroku is a huge advantage. For sure, it, it does make, uh, make switching uh, more daunting than you'd like. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, getting a little current, like a few of your recent posts uh, have been about, say, um, how to become profitable faster as a SaaS company, something I'm sure uh, VCs have become more and more attracted to, or... Uh, also, drops in like in SaaS valuation specifically. Um, where do you stand on the funding squeeze? Uh, we're like we're in March 2016 right now. How bad do you think it's going to be, and how would you like startups to adapt? I think the Series A market is probably going to be mildly impacted, but not altogether hugely impacted. The later stage markets will certainly be, um, and we're definitely seeing that. Um, and so, you know, the closer you get to going public, the more the public market valuations and forward multiples matter, right? And we used to be at 7.7 times median forward multiple, and now we're 57% below that. That was the last time I calculated it. And so 
um, the closer you are to going public, I think the more the multiples are going to hit you. But at the early stage, um, you know, maybe this the seat the the series A I think will be relatively untouched. The seed stage will, will be impacted, and I think just talking to other friends of mine who are angel investors, they're already seeing a little bit of a compression in the seed market, and that's because um, as valuations compress even a little bit, the question you're asking yourself before you lead an investment at almost any stage of the business is, how hard is it going to be for this company to raise the next round? And if the valuation is too high, then it becomes much harder because the company's execution has to be perfect uh, in order to get there. And it's always nice to have a little bit of a buffer. When I think about it, like, the way I often think about it is, the optimist side of me wants to say uh, the valuations for seed will come down, so we'll no longer see these like ten or fifteen million dollar seed uh, rounds. Uh, we'll see <laughs> right. Looking for valuations a lot more closer to sanity, like four, five, six, seven. Um, in a sense, is there more money to be made as a result of that? Like, because if you think about a, a, a seed stage company today. Uh, it's you know, will we be clear of this compression by the time they need to do an ABC? So, are you asking, is there more money to be made as an investor or as a founder? As an investor, if the valuations are down and and your company manages to make it through winter, uh, do you commit to Farside having bought into a good company at a lower valuation? Well, the lower the valuation you get into a great company, the more money you make. That's always the case. The question is like, hey, what is the right multiple for a SaaS company? Right. You know, and was this 7.7 times or was 8 times forward that we saw? Like, is that the right number? Is the 3.3 that we're seeing now, is that the right number? Or is like the median over the last 10 years, 5x, is that the right number? Yeah. And so, like, no one really knows the answer because yeah. there's, you know, it's all just what yeah. the market decides. So yeah. I think, you know, lower entry prices mean you get better returns kind of no matter what. But another big factor to consider is like, hey, there's a lot of volatility in the forward multiple. Right. then that might have a much more of an impact on your ultimate exit rather than the entry price. When it comes to um, like obviously a, a compressed market in terms of finance, obviously something like profit becomes more attractive. Is this something that you would advise companies to start looking towards or at the very least keep it as a time point in the future? Yeah, I write a lot about profitability because it's a point of leverage for founders, right? So over the last couple of years, founders have really had a lot of leverage in fundraising conversations because there's so much competition from investors to invest in great companies. And when you have an auction with way more demand than supply, prices go up and the seller has leverage, right? Uh, in which case, you know, the startup has leverage, and so that means valuations can increase. You know, if the market continues to kind of turn south, then what ends up happening is, this, you know, supply remains constant, and let's say demand goes down at particular prices, the founders have less leverage, right? And so what you really want to have is leverage at all times, and the way to have leverage in a down market or bear market is to have an alternative, which is to be, become profitable. And so the, the most important advice is always have a plan to get to profitability, on the current cash you have. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing that kind of occurs to me a little bit is um, whenever there's any sort of constrained environment around availability of cash, a lot of the advice that appears, uh, such as, you know, cut all unnecessary burn, uh, stop buying, you know, expensive coconut water, etc. <laughs> yeah. It all sounds like, it sounds like stop doing dumb shit. It's, you know, it's, you know, and like I'm trying to work out, like at what point did we say, hey, here's some advice for you all, start doing dumb shit. Well, no, but it's uh, really fast growth masks lots of sins. Right. Right. Like, if if a company is growing at an incredibly quick rate, no one's really going to ask very many questions about, you know, 
what, what are you spending on coconut water? Right. You know, and then what ends up happening is then things get tighter and people start asking, you know, more probing questions like, hey, it turns out, you know, this line item in the P&L statement is unusually high. What's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea that, that like that coconut water could be a board level discussion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, does it change how you think of uh, being pitched by, uh, say, a Series A stage company? Like, are, is your own appraisal of the company as they pitch you uh, changing? Are the questions you ask changing? Not really. I mean, I think I'm really looking forward, or we're really looking for is just companies who can really win disproportionate share of their market segments and all the things that a company needs in order to be able to do that. So that really hasn't changed. I mean, I think there's definitely probably, we spend a little bit more time on unit economics, understanding payback period, and then trying to understand the cash needs of the business. You know, and then we may have a little bit more of a conversation around, hey, how hard will the next round be to raise? Yeah. But uh, on the whole, it's unchanged. And last question, sticking with pitching, because obviously a lot of our, uh, a lot of our listenership are startups themselves. What's the most common mistake or common mistakes you see when founders are in trying to win you or Redpoint's money? You know, um, there's a there's a seed stage investor named Leo Polovets, and he just wrote about this on his blog, uh, which is codingvc.com. And I think what a lot of founders don't understand is the way that investors look at businesses, and they look at them as collections of risk. Right, so there are probably like 10, 10 or eleven different kinds of risks that a startup can face. Right, so one risk could be technology risk. Can you build what you say you want to? Mm-hmm. Another one could be uh, legal risk. Like, are you in a regulated category? Um, a third one could be fundraising risk. Like, the next round's gonna be really hard to raise. And whenever we talk about companies internally, we're trying to understand which risks does the startup face and which ones have they mitigated. So. If you're a group of great technologists and you come in proving that you've built a really great technology demo or a really great next generation technology, you really haven't de-risked the business very much because I know that you, you know that the team is going to build a great technology. But the questions that I'm, I'm curious about have more to do with, hey, I wonder if this company can sell. And so an interesting way or a good thought experiment before pitching would be, hey, let's create the basket of risk this company faces. Let's look at the ones that we know we can handle and let's think through how we can argue to an investor that we can mitigate the ones, the big ones. Right, so, so, so almost like lean into the risks and then confront them head on. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Cool. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Tom. It's been really enjoyable. I'm sure our listeners will get a lot from this. Awesome. Yes, thank you so much. This was really fun. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, just visit soundcloud.com forward slash intercom. And if you want to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.io.